The theme in Luke's Gospel is that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And the implication of Christ's searching of us is that we cannot depend on our own self-righteousness, but instead we can only trust in Jesus and surrender everything to Him. And this story that we're going to look at this evening in Luke chapter 18 illustrates the theme of the whole Gospel. That is, this whole uh, Gospel writing that Luke put together. That the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus has been preparing His disciples for the coming kingdom. In chapter 17, He showed them what faith looked like and what signs of the kingdom that there would be. They should be looking for. Really, their descendants should be looking for. And then in the beginning of chapter 18, He showed what to do while they wait for the kingdom. But then in chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus turned His attention to what it takes to enter the kingdom. And we saw that We need to see God as the gracious giver and that we must come in complete trust. And tonight we're going to see that that only God can make the impossible possible. So let me read our passage for us, Luke chapter 18, and I'll begin with verse 18. This is the Word of God. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, 
what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. God makes what is impossible for us possible. God makes the impossible possible. Here Jesus continues on His teaching of what it takes to enter into the kingdom of God. And here we have a man who is pursuing eternal life. Someone who is interested in eternal things. And so this story really is a continuation of the previous. Apparently this young ruler was listening and he had just heard that in order for a person to receive the kingdom, they have to do it like... They have to receive it like a little child. How is it that a person does gain eternal life? And so, after hearing Jesus speak in chapter 18, verses 1 to 17, He responds by asking Christ a question. Notice that the young ruler was the one that was seeking after God. He's the one who initiates the conversation with Jesus in verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? From our perspective, it looks as if the rich young ruler is the one who's doing the searching. Now, when he asks this question, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What we should notice is that Christ doesn't say, Pray this prayer after me and you will be saved. Sometimes we are too quick to push people to a final decision without allowing them to think through the cost of salvation. That's what Jesus is going to do here. He wants him to understand the cost of salvation. And see, we're driving toward that decision even if it's at the cost of an uninformed decision. That is, that the person doesn't really understand what they're getting into. Jesus doesn't allow for that. He doesn't move quickly to the final decision. He wants to make sure that the man understands his condition before God and what it's going to take to follow God, what God expects of him if he is to be saved. If a person is going to come to Christ, they need to count the cost. Instead of pushing toward a decision, Jesus probed into the mind of this young man to see where he, where he was regarding his thinking about eternal things. And the first thing that Jesus shows him in verse 19 is that eternal life demands a proper understanding of goodness. Eternal life demands a proper understanding of goodness. The standard of goodness that Jesus talks about here, beginning in verse 19, is a standard that's illustrated in the law. The man asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But he he prefaces or addresses Jesus by calling Him good teacher. There could be several reasons why he calls Him that. Maybe he's trying to get Jesus to reciprocate. If he calls Him good teacher, he'll... Maybe Jesus will call him good man or something like that, good ruler. Uh, or it could be that that uh, that he's he's trying to appeal to Jesus as a great teacher. And Jesus responds by saying, "Why do you call me good?" What you should notice is that Jesus doesn't say, "I'm not the good one; only the Father's good." That's not what he says. But he does say, "Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone." Jesus, I think here, is pointing to His deity and wanting to see if the young man understood who Jesus really would, really was. And then He moves on very quickly in verse 20 
to talk about a standard of goodness. Okay, so if you're you're wanting to enter eternal life, you recognize that there has to be goodness involved. So let's talk about the law. The second thing that he shows him is that eternal life demands perfect conformity to the law. Eternal life demands perfect conformity to the law. Now, there's great danger in interpreting this verse, verse 20, apart from the surrounding context because what we can draw from this wrongly, if we're not careful, is that we must do things in order to accept or to receive eternal life. We, we, we could say that God requires us to do works, to do the Ten Commandments. But we must understand what Jesus is doing here. Instead of asking the man, do you love God? That's what he's really getting at. That's, by the way, what the law points to. It points to the fact of whether a person loves God and whether he loves his neighbor. And when a person loves his neighbor, it shows that he actually loves God. And so the law reveals that. And so instead of Jesus saying, do you love God? He gets right down to reality. Let's talk about the laws. He's not suggesting that if a man kept the whole law, that he would earn salvation. But rather, he's showing the the man that he is sinful. These five commandments that Jesus listed all have to do with relationships. Did you notice that? He he skips over the first four that have to do with uh, the the relationship between God and man. And it's just talking about these five middle commandments that have to do more with the relationship with another person. And so he's saying, if you love God, let's see how it plays out in loving your neighbor. Do you do it perfectly? And in this case, the young man was not really in major violation of any of these commandments as he, as he sees it himself, what Jesus is going to discover or reveal is that the main violation he had didn't have to do with relationship so much as it did with his love for money. And that's what this man was all about, superficial conformity. In verse 21, he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. I, I, I'm on track here. All these things are required of me in order to inherit eternal life. I've done them. From his perspective, he had conformed to the law completely. And this brings us to a good point that when you witness to someone, your first job, your first job is to help see, help them to see their sin. Now, you don't don't be uh, rude or you know Jesus doesn't say you you liar. You haven't obeyed all these. You you're a sinner. Admit it. So what I'm saying here is we shouldn't show people their sin like you show your dog his mess on the carpet and force him to um, to, to be feel guilt about it. Rather, lead them to the mirror of God's Word and, and let them see what God is, is proclaiming to them about their own condition. It's ultimately the Holy Spirit that is going to reveal to them uh, the, the heinousness of their own sin. Because if a person doesn't see their sin as the Bible portrays their sin, they will not be saved. And so that's the first step that Jesus is working towards. Let's talk about the law. The law helps to reveal your sin, show you how you're not in conformity to God's law. And if you were able to see that, then he could then count the cost and respond rightly. But, but he, he, uh, he had the superficial conformity. In verse 22, we have the obstacle to eternal life. Jesus is showing him here in verse 22 that he needs to count the cost. That a life of a person that follows Jesus is a life that often doesn't have a place to sleep, like Jesus said, that is a life of rejection. 
a life of service, a life of suffering, a life of giving. And so he says this, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow Me. Now, he's not saying that if you were to give all your money to the poor, you would be saved. That's not the point. That's not the means by which He inherits eternal life. But rather, Jesus recognizes that the obstacle for this rich man, this man specifically, is that he is so attached to his money and his possessions that he needs to get rid of those things. Because a man can't serve both God and money. And and uh, the reason I know that, that uh, it's not required of us to sell all of our possessions in order to follow Jesus is because in the very next chapter, in the very next story, it begins the next chapter, with Zacchaeus, he is not told to sell all his possessions. He does give away half of it to the poor and he does pay fourfold back for what he had taken, but, but he's not told to give it all away. Okay, So the point here, and Jesus is not opposed to wealth in general. Look at the next line here in verse 22. So the, the second part of the verse. And you shall have treasure in heaven. So wealth's not a bad thing inherently, is it? Money and possessions are not a bad thing inherently, but they are when they become our greatest, uh, our greatest idol, when they become our God. The problem with this young man is that he thought he was in conformity to the Ten Commandments, but he was clearly in violation of one that Jesus didn't list, and that was the first commandment, that he should have no other gods before the true and living God. So this man turns away sad. The response of Christ's demand for salvation is found in verses 23-27. through 27. First, the response by the ruler. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. If Christ is saying that in order for me to, to inherit eternal life, I need to give things up, I can't pay that cost. I'm not willing to serve God to that, at, at that price. At, at that price. He left Jesus as an unbeliever who was in love with his money. And notice here that he went away sad. Sadness, sorrow, regret is not a sign of genuine repentance necessarily. Okay? The lost, even Judas was sorrowful for his sin, but he was by far uh, he was far away from being a believer. Okay, so 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 sorrow there is a, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but there's also worldly sorrow that recognizes the weight of the decision but turns away like this man, sad, but still unrepentant. So there's the response of the rich man. And this is extremely perplexing to the crowd. Notice how Jesus kind of piles on and makes this even more difficult for the crowd, even his own disciples to understand. He looked at him, verse 24, and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is hard to take in. If you have a man who is the most fortunate of all people, he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler, his wealth to them, seemed like a sign of God's favor, right? It, like God was in favor with this man and, and He was even willing to obey the commandments. He seemed like a morally upright man. He was searching after eternal life. 
So in hearing this, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. It's, it's more possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit eternal life. How can this be? I mean, if this man, the most likely of all people to be saved because of the favor that he has received from God, if he cannot be saved, then how can any one of us stand a chance? If the most fortunate cannot get into the kingdom of God, then no one can. And that's exactly the point. Look at verse 27. They say, or 26 says, then who can be saved? If, if he can't, then who can? Verse 27, Jesus says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Here, Jesus makes a provocative, striking point for the disciples. And that is that we don't have a God who is limited in His ability like we are limited our God makes what seems impossible to man possible. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 when there was nothing? There was nothing that exist, existed except for God. And from our perspective, it was impossible for there to be a, a universe, and yet God makes the impossible possible. How about in Genesis 6 when God wanted to destroy wickedness on the earth? From our perspective, it's impossible to bring enough water to fill up the entire earth so that it covered the highest mountain but God makes the impossible possible. Or when Abraham was 99 years old and God said next year at this time you're going to have a son. From our perspective, it was impossible for Sarah to conceive and yet God makes the impossible possible. And how about when Joseph was sold into slavery by his bitter brothers? How was this going to come out in a good way? Or when Pharaoh issued a decree to slaughter all the babies, how could it be possible for a baby to survive who would lead Israel out of Egypt? But God makes the impossible possible. Or when the people of Israel had their backs against the Red Sea and the Egyptians are approaching, and they were surely going to die from our perspective, yet God makes the impossible possible. Or when Joshua leads an untrained army of Jews into Canaan against a huge military superpower with great fortress on a hill with double walls, how could they ever breach those walls and defeat the city of Jer Jericho, let alone dozens of other cities throughout the land of Israel? And yet God makes the impossible possible. Or when Gideon took 200 men into battle against tens of thousands and somehow won. Or when David fought the giant or Elijah was fed by a widow and by ravens. Or when Israel was led out of captivity. Or when the Scripture required that Jesus would be born of a virgin something that we would look at and say, that's impossible, and yet God makes the impossible possible. Or when Jesus turned water into wine, fed 5,000, cast out demons, healed the sick, raised Lazarus from the dead, walked on water. It's our God who makes the impossible possible. Or when a hardened Christian murderer named Paul or Saul was transformed into the greatest missionary in history. God makes the impossible Possible, or when you and I stand before the holy God because of our sin and our inability to please Him, and we say, if this rich man can't be saved, who can be saved? From our perspective, it is impossible, and we are right, because it's only possible with God that we can be saved. Because God makes what seems impossible to be possible. You see, salvation by our own effort is impossible. It is only possible for us to have eternal life, whether rich or poor, 
based on the gracious work of our God. So Jesus responds to their question by saying, it's God who does the work. That's the point. You, you don't see how He can come to salvation if, if He, the greatest of all people, from our perspective, cannot be saved, then no one can. And the point is, they can't do it on their own. That's how we should view salvation, as impossible for us, but only possible for God. And so we need God in the work of salvation to bring about life. After Jesus responded to their question, Peter follows up with a a question regarding personal sacrifice. Well, since he wasn't willing, the rich young ruler was not willing to give up everything that he had, what about us? We we were willing to do that. So what's going to happen to us? And Jesus acknowledges the work that the disciples have done and the sacrifice that they have made for the sake of following Christ. And He said to them, verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus responds by saying, following Me is worth it in this lifetime. Following Me is worth it in the next lifetime. Notice first, it's worth it in this lifetime. Whoever gives up all these things, even if it's family members, even if your family, your closest family members abandon you because of your commitment to the Gospel, look what happens to them. Verse 30, who will not receive... The point is that there's no one who will not receive this. So the positive way of saying it is they will receive many times as much at this time. So in this lifetime, you will receive back a greater family. Isn't that true of someone who has been abandoned by their family, ostracized from their family? That they gain a better family, a, great, a, a, a larger family of believers, and in the next life as well. And the age to come, the end of the verse says, eternal life. So it is worth it. Listen, Peter, I realize that you're giving up some things. And you may have people abandon you for the sake of me. But it's worth it, both in this life and the next. In verses 31 to 34, we see that salvation is impossible apart from the finished work of Christ. Again, Jesus records here for the sixth time, or reports to them for the sixth time, that that He was going to die. That the Son of Man was going to die. He tells them this in advance because He's approaching Jerusalem and He wants them to know that the cross is not an unavoidable accident or some kind of unforeseen victory by Satan but rather the cross is part of the plan of God. How can the disciples know that? Because Christ had told them six times that He was going to die and raise, be raised from the dead three days later. And when the disciples clearly here in verse 34, the disciples did not understand what was going on. But when they looked back on the events following the crucifixion and the resurrection, when they looked back on it, certainly they must have been reminded about these times in which Jesus had predicted His death. Salvation is impossible, impossible apart from the finished work of Christ. In verses 35 to 43, we see that genuine faith believes in Christ with a childlike trust. We saw this last week in verses 15 to 17 that we need to receive the kingdom of God like a child would receive an adult or a parent. They they have an unreserved trust in that person. We need to have that kind of childlike trust if we're going to enter the kingdom. Here. 
uh, Jesus is not telling a story uh, that is a parable uh, in order to teach something. He's actually... Uh, Luke is recording an actual event that takes place on his way to Jerusalem. So as Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, they come to the city called Jericho, which is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And and there is a huge crowd that now is following Jesus because of all the miracles and the teaching. And certainly because of the upcoming Passover, there's a lot of Jews coming this way. And Bartimaeus stakes, we know his name from Mark chapter 10, he stakes his claim on a really good spot on this road. Because you have so many Jews coming for a, for a good thing, they're going to be kind-hearted and often give to him who is a blind beggar. Notice the helplessness of this man in verse 38. He begs for mercy. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. There's no one bringing him before Jesus and saying, hey, you have the, the great physicians coming. Why don't you see if he can help you? Instead, they kind of they kind of ignore him. And even Jesus' entourage, towards the beginning of the entourage, they're like, get this guy quiet. Okay, He doesn't have time for this man. He's, he's on a mission here. And yet this man recognizes his helplessness. Apparently he's heard of Christ before. He knows that he is the son of David. That is the promised Messiah from David's line. David's greater son, his descendant, And so this title, Son of David, is really a title that's given to the Messiah, this descendant of David who will be greater than David, according to Psalm 110. And the Old Testament promised that this Messiah would be able to give sight to the blind. And Christ has already given sight to the blind in Luke chapter 7 and other places. And here He's going to do it again. Notice this man has this childlike trust and that he puts his faith in Christ despite opposition. Verses 39 to 42. Those who led the way, that is, led the crowd who were with Jesus, they were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Bartimaeus is being opposed by not being recognized by these people, getting pushed to the background. And yet he he recognizes that he needs to be persistent and so he cries out the same thing all over again, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus sees his need in verses 40 to 42. And notice what Bartimaeus does not ask for. He doesn't ask for money so that he can make it through the next week or next year. He doesn't ask for grace to be able to live with this difficult situation, this blindness. When Jesus says, what do you want from me? The man says, I want to regain my sight. I want to see. He's very straightforward with Jesus. And Jesus calls the blind man to Him, in effect, rebuking the crowd at the same time who has been trying to push Him back off to the side. And He brings him, he gives Him sight and saves Him from His sins. Notice verse 43, uh, 40, 42. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Again, This is a phrase we've seen before. If you look at the margin of your Bible, you should see that it means the faith. Uh, Another way of saying it is your faith has saved you. So he's receiving two kinds of sight here. Physical sight and spiritual sight. Your faith has saved you. The fact that you called out to me is going to give to you physical sight because I'm going to give it to you and it's going to give you spiritual sight as well. 
And so Jesus can save even a blind sinner like Bartimaeus or a sinner like Paul. And if He can save those men and if He can save people in this room like He has, then who won't He be able to save? This is what Jesus came to do. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We need to recognize where we are in relationship to Christ. We need to count the cost. And we need to turn to Jesus in, uh, with a childlike trust. Salvation is impossible for us, but all things are possible with God. Therefore, salvation is of God. It is a gracious, sovereign work of God, and so we must turn to Him. If you are trusting in your obedience of the Ten Commandments as the way in which God will accept you, you are not saved. If you are trusting in the amount of money that you give to church each week as the way in which God will accept you, you are not saved. If you're trusting in anything else besides the work of Jesus Christ, you are not saved. Because true believers have trusted in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, and they are currently trusting in Christ and in Him alone. And so the real test for us is not, you know, what you did on August 7th, 1988 when you prayed a prayer. Rather, the real test is what you're doing now. It's not, have you trust? Nowhere in the Scriptures does it call you the believed. It calls you believers, saints, people who are truly who are currently holy ones, who are currently believing. Are you trusting in Christ alone today? What must a person do to be saved? What was it that the rich man could have done in order to receive eternal life? And the answer is that God has to give him and He has to give us eyes to see like He did for Bartimaeus. Spiritual eyes to see. That there is nothing that we, that, that, uh, that we can do that will allow us to be accepted before God. And that's because of our sinful natures, our opposed to God. There's, there's no amount of obedience or sacrifice that can meet God's requirements because God requires perfection. And if we are guilty of one point, we're guilty of the entire law. And so we need someone to stand in our place. We need someone to pay for our sins. We need someone to live a righteous life that we can't live. And so with us, it's hopeless. It's impossible from our perspective. It's God who has to give us the eyes to see. It's God who has to make it possible. It's God who has to give us a new heart. It's God who has to regenerate us. He has to impart spiritual life to us who are spiritually dead. And our response is the response of Lazarus when he awakens from the the tomb. It is to respond with faith, with obedience. But he can't do that until he has life imparted to him. See, we come to Christ like the blind man came to Christ. Empty-handed, full of faith, believing that what Jesus has said is true. The kingdom of God belongs to people who come to Him in this way. And so tonight, we ought to praise God for His grace because salvation is not of us. You know, we, we can even come to Christ, we're going to see next week, that we have this feeling like we were the ones searching after God, but over time what we discover is that actually God was the one searching for us. 
that, that just like we sang this morning, before I found Him, before I sought Him, He found me. He sought me. Before I loved Him, He loved me. And that's the point. We should recognize, while we may not recognize at the very beginning, at some point in our Christian life, as we begin to mature, we recognize that it was God who was pursuing me. Like God was pursuing wicked, idolatrous Israel, as we read earlier tonight in Hosea. Right? It wasn't that Israel's looking around, searching everywhere. Where is the true and living God? How can I serve Him? No, instead, God's pursuing after her, Israel. Just like Hosea was pursuing after Gomer, despite her wickedness. That's God with us. We are lost in our sins. We're, we're opposed to Him, heading the wrong direction. And God wakes us up by giving us a new heart, causing us to see. And we respond in faith by saying, God, I believe. And we believe that Jesus is enough. That nothing that we can do will satisfy God's wrath. And so a proper response of us as we discover that our faith is not of us, that even our faith is a gift from God, ought to be one of praise to God. So let's pray and praise God for His mercy and salvation tonight. Father, thank You for... Uh, all the implications that come from knowing Jesus Christ. And one of them is that we come to know that our salvation was not of us. While it felt like it from the very beginning, we were searching for truth. We were making choices that had to do with our own salvation. It felt like we were doing that. But now that we realize the Holy Spirit was involved in that and that we cannot be granted spiritual sight until we're given new eyes, uh, we, we can do nothing but praise You for Your mercy and salvation. Thank You for, for giving to us what we could not give to ourselves. And Lord, help us to not be people who are described as the believed, but described as believers, people who are continually trusting in You as the only means of our salvation all the way until the end. Help us not to give up, to lose heart, but to continue to do good and, and not grow weary in doing so. And we pray for more people to be able to see this Gospel. Lord, You have put us in the path and in the lives of unbelievers that we see some every day, some people weekly, sometimes less frequently than that, but we have unbelievers in our lives that You have put in our, in our lives. And and Lord, we want to see them come to Christ as well. Use us as vessels for You to share this great Gospel that changed us and is changing us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.